New York City doesn't have clear blue waters and tropical breezes, but it's still a major destination point for Caribbean immigrants, and has been for decades. In fact, more West Indians live in New York than in any other city outside of the Caribbean. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Caribbean Pride will be on full display Monday at the West Indian American Day Parade in Brooklyn. Millions of people will line up along Eastern Parkway to catch the excitement of the largest annual parade in New York City, which features colorful costumes and rhythmic island sounds. On this morning's show, we'll explore the history of West Indian migration to New York City, move to the beat of a steel drum band, and get a taste for West Indian cuisine. We're talking about the tail of the ox, which doesn't sound appetizing, but it's delicious once you eat it. That's all coming up on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. If you plan to attend this weekend's West Indian Parade in Brooklyn, you can expect to see people waving flags from Trinidad, Barbados, Jamaica, and other Caribbean nations. West Indians first began to migrate to New York City at the turn of the 20th century. Hunter College sociology professor Nancy Foner is the editor of a book called Islands in the City. I recently talked with her about West Indians in New York. People often think that today, you know, is the first time that West Indians came to New York in large numbers, but actually that's not true. There was actually a very substantial West Indian migration to New York early in the 20th century, in the first couple of decades in the 20th century. Now, it pales beside the numbers that are coming today, but at the time it was actually quite significant. And where did they primarily come from at that time? They came from Jamaica and Barbados and Trinidad, you know, many of the same places that they come from today. And why were they coming? here? Well, as always, economic conditions in the Caribbean, uh, you know, poor economic conditions. Um, You can make more money in the United States, have a better standard of living. So, I mean, people have been leaving the West Indies ever since the end of slavery, seeking out a better life. Although people, you know, love their country. People used to tell me when I did field work in Jamaica, you know, Jamaica is a beautiful country, but we just can't make it here. And so people feel forced to leave because uh, if they get work, they often can't get full-time work. Um, the pay is relatively low. Their standard of living's low. They're very much aware of lifestyles in the United States. By now, there's just, just a huge migration. So it's understandable that many West Indians came in the past and continue to come today. Where were they settling in the 1900s? Largely in Manhattan and Harlem, uh, some in Bed-Stuy, but th- those were the major places. But Harlem was very, very high proportion of, of West Indians in the early um, 20th century. West Indians don't settle in Harlem today. They come to Brooklyn, to Queens, to the Bronx, very few in Manhattan. So they were driven to areas of the city like Harlem that had a black population already? Um, they tended, that's a complicated story. I guess, uh, yes, hundred in the early 20th century, they certainly moved to areas that had a large black population or a growing population. Because remember, in New York, at the time that West Indians started to come, there was very small black population in New York. 
1910 blacks were just below 2% of the population in the city. So they were, the, it was beginning of a movement from the South. Uh, and West Indians were really coming at the same time. So that, no, there were, it wasn't a large black population, but they tended to live in the same areas as, as African Americans. Today, that's true to some extent, less true. The West Indians have moved, live in West Indian ethnic enclaves. And in fact, one of the phenomena is once they begin to live in a certain area, African Americans often join them. Uh, and they've often moved into areas today that were white areas earlier where whites have moved out, began to move out. There were openings. West Indians moved in. And as we see in New York often happens, as West Indians moved in in any number, no new whites moved in. Whites began to leave. And the neighborhoods became quickly, heavily, virtually all black. And as you were saying, the numbers were smaller in terms of the migration in the early 1900s compared to today. Wasn't there a gap because immigration laws changed? Yes, yeah, the immigration laws changed, and so the migration stopped, and also there was the Great Depression, and there was World War II, but the numbers were tiny, I mean, 30, 40,000, 50,000. Today, we're talking over half a million West Indian immigrants, so the numbers, even though New York is a bigger place, percentage, even percentage-wise, they're a much larger percentage, and the numbers are just enormous. I mean, if you put together West, if on here I'm talking about um, West Indies from the English-speaking islands and Guyana, which is not an island but is part of the West Indies, if you put them all together, they're actually the largest group immigrant group in New York, and they're certainly well over half a million immigrants, and that does not include the children of immigrants. So it's a very, very significant community in New York. And there are more West Indians here in New York than any other city in the United States, am I right? By far, yes. West in New York is the capital of West Indian America. There are large numbers who now go to Florida, to South Florida, but still the numbers in New York are much higher. Yeah, well, New York is the West Indian capital of America, clearly. Can you explain a little bit more why West Indians stopped going to Harlem, settling in Harlem over time? Well, Harlem was kind of decaying, <laughs> and the housing stock wasn't so good. So I suspect that they went to areas where the housing was better. I mean, when think of the time when West Indians started to come, 1960s. Harlem had a lot of abandoned housing. It wasn't a place that people were really moving to. So, you know, why not move to Brooklyn, you know, where the housing stock was much better, or the Bronx or Queens? And it's clear that West Indians were moving to areas where the housing stock was better. It's interesting to me how people tend to lump West Indians in with African Americans in New York as if there's no difference. Well, I think when people see people who are of African ancestry and black skin color, they think of the person as black. And that's a very sad feature of American life and continued of New York life. And so I don't think New Yorkers are, I think they are to some extent because they hear accents, they sometimes employ people who are West Indians. So white New Yorkers, I think, are often aware that there's been West Indian migration, but I don't think they're aware of how extensive it is and what a large proportion West Indians are of the black population. By now, they're probably around a third of the black population of New York. That's just immigrants. If we put West Indians and their American-born children together, they may well be about half of the non-Hispanic black population in New York. So that's rather significant. How would you describe the relationship between West Indians Mm -hmm. and New York City's African-American population? 
Well, that is a complex topic. If we're talking about immigrants, there's both, I guess a, a, a sociologist, Milton Vickerman, puts it very well. He says there's both distancing and identification. On the one hand, West Indians come here, they see that African Americans are on the bottom of the heap, that particularly poor African Americans are looked down upon, and so they often seek to differentiate themselves from poor African Americans. They do, they feel they, you know, they have a high, better values, they buy houses, they work hard, they don't go on welfare. I mean, these are the standard things you hear. And they don't want to be lumped together with African Americans. They're worried about their children being caught up in all the bad aspects of poor African-American life in New York. But at the same time, and particularly the longer they stay here, the more they do identify with African-Americans on the basis of their shared racial experience and prejudice. They often live together. They often work together. Their children go to school together. And then the children, I think, have even a more of an identification. They, they still often identify as West Indian. But without an accent, other people are not often aware that they are West Indian and just see them as blacks. And, you know, there's intermarriage between West Indian and African Americans in the second generation. So I think there are both things going on, just to come back to that. It's both distancing, uh, ways in which West Indians often feel superior to African Americans, ways in which African Americans resent the new presence of so many West Indians coming in. But then there are bonds between them. Let's talk about employment. Now, the West Indian folks who came to the United States, were they taking higher-paid jobs compared to the African-Americans already here? Earlier, in the, in the early um, 20th century, I, I, no, the answer is no. They were women, overwhelmingly West Indian women, like African-American women, were concentrated overwhelmingly in domestic work. They couldn't get other jobs. The men, you know, were porters. They were doing the same things that African-American were doing. men were doing. It wasn't all that different. So I, I, I don't think so. I mean, there may have been some competition for these low-level jobs. But, you know, the New York economy was expanding. Uh, and today, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think there's intense competition between West Indians and, and African-Americans for work, no. What are West Indians primarily doing today in New York City? There are a few jobs that people think of. First of all, you know, people think of the West Indian nanny. So there are women are heavily concentrated in, first of all, women are heavily concentrated in health care. Some men, too, but that is a women's ethnic niche in hospitals, in nursing homes, in all-level jobs, but, you know, nursing aides, all kinds of jobs in the hospitals and in the nursing homes. So that's definitely a West Indian ethnic niche. Another ethnic niche for women has been domestic work. Now, that's a job, actually, that African-American women have avoided. As African-American women have gotten more education, as they've been able to actually move into better jobs, they have been unwilling to take domestic jobs. Um, they have left those behind because they don't want them. They don't want jobs that involve this kind of day-to-day, -day, every minute subordination to whites in a household situation. And so they have left those. And immigrants have stepped in. And West Indians are, are, have many West Indian women look after children. Many of them are looking after old people. There's a big market for that now as the New York City's population is aging. Men are in less concentrated. They're in transportation, construction, various kinds of, you know, a, a, more of a mix of jobs. And some in health care, too. Are a lot of them sending money home as they make oh, it here? Oh, yeah. They're sending remittances, yes. Huge amount of remittances to their relatives back home, of course, yes, because they're often 
come they come here to help their relatives out. Some of them, uh, a common pattern is also for people to come and leave their children behind initially, so they're often sending money back to the, for their children and to the people looking after their children initially. I mean, that's often a pattern. And then the children come to join them later. The other thing that also... People talk a lot in social sciences now about transnationalism. I guess I was in Jamaica a few years ago to give a talk, and I was in a hotel in Kingston. I guess what struck me is not only could I see CNN, which you sort of assume, but they were broadcasting the local news from New York City and Toronto. So there I was sitting, it was, you know, like 90 degrees in this hotel in Kingston, and I was watching the traffic in New York, the traffic in Toronto, which, by the way, has a very large West Indian community. So, I mean, there is so much back and forth now. There are so many people have relatives here. I mean, one of the things, another thing, I mean, I found that kind of astounding because it was so different from when I had been there earlier. And the other thing that's actually quite astounding is, you know, cell phones. Jamaica now has, there are almost as many cell phones in Jamaica as people. So people are just standing, you know, everywhere talking to their relatives in New York. So you can be in this small village in Jamaica, like the one I studied, and, you know, working in your fields and, you know, talking to your relatives in Brooklyn. And it's cheap. What about religion among West Indians here? Ah, well, most West Indians, of course, are Christian. In fact, they're all Christian um, in different Protestant groups, um, some Catholic. That's an area It's interesting that um, social scientists have not studied very much, which is interesting because I, I did research in, in Jamaica, and in the community that I lived in, there were I mean, so many churches. I mean, church life was a really important part of people's lives. And from what I can tell, um, it, it's a very important part of people's lives here, too. And they have churches that are heavily West Indian with West Indian pastors, um, I was going to say, did they open their own houses of worship, or did they integrate into well, existing it, ones? I think initially when they came, my, my guess is that many of them went into African-American churches because they already were there. But slowly, as the numbers grew, they've, they've formed their own churches or become do- the dominant group in many churches. And so that's changed. I mean, when you have a community of over half a million. And here we have, you know, there is not like a Jamaican church or a Trinidadian church. I mean, the West Indians tend to go to churches with a, that are West Indian that have people in them from various islands and societies. And there's no question that West Indian tastes have mm-hmm. impacted New York City in the way that we eat today, mm-hmm. all of us, mm-hmm. the flavors. That's true. I think, yes, exactly. In terms of, I don't know, what are we, patties? <laughs> I guess, is that what, uh, roti? Are those the things? Yes. Restaurants are popping up. I mean, there are more and more West Indian restaurants. In fact, I think the New York Times just on this, wasn't it this last Sunday, had when they have this section about where to eat, they had a section about where to eat various kinds of West Indian food in, in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn neighborhoods. Immigration has benefited New York tremendously and that our food has gotten much better. Do you think that in some ways the contributions of West Indians mm-hmm. here in New York City have become lost because they're often lumped together with African Americans? Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know if they've been lost. Perhaps they haven't been highlighted as much as they might be. Um, I think, yeah, because they are thought of as black. But, you know, there are fam- well-known West Indians, right, who are, I mean, they're beginning to make their mark in politics. But I think you're right, when they become famous, you know, people don't say, oh, that's a West Indian person, right? They say that's a black 
movie star, right? They don't, you know, Sidney Poitier. People don't say, oh, he's West Indian. That's not the first thing that pops into people's mind, although he is West Indian. He was born in, in the West Indies. Nancy Foner, thank you so much. Thank you. Delighted to have the chance to talk with you. Nancy Foner is a sociology professor at Hunter College. She's also the editor of a book called Islands in the City, West Indian Migration to New York. It's published by University of California Press. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. On this morning's show, we're exploring the rich culture and traditions that West Indian immigrants have brought to life on the streets of New York City. The city's home to the largest Caribbean population in the U.S. For many West Indians living here, the steel drum is a way of connecting with home. An annual steel drum competition called Panorama takes place tonight at 7.30 at the Brooklyn Museum. Ten bands have been practicing day and night for the past few months for tonight's event. The trophy? Bragging rights for a whole year that you're the best steel drum band in the city. We saw and heard for ourselves how serious these guys are about playing steel drums when we dropped in on one band's rehearsal in Canarsie. My name is Tom Montfalcohen. I am the manager of Rado Steel Orchestra and a board member of the U.S. Steel Band Association. We are here out in the industrial area of Canarsie, surrounded by warehouses and sanitation depots and the Brooklyn Terminal Market in an area where there are very few residences, so we're able to practice out here uh, without disturbing anybody. Later today, this evening, uh, on the grounds of the Brooklyn Museum, will be taking place the annual Steel Band Panorama Competition. That is the highlight of the season, and that is the event that all of these bands have been preparing for for the last two, three months. These are the panas, or the panas. Steel drums are also known as pans. The panas are members of the community who are normally not professional musicians, although a few of them are, who really participate in this for the love of the culture and the art form. This is a community-based organization, a community-based cultural activity. I love it. That's part of my life, you know, after my wife, you know. That's my love, you know. <laughs> my name is Owen Barrington. When coming to the Steel Drums, I play bass. I've been playing band for like almost 40, 45 years. It's something like you kind of stay away from once you try it. It's like a spirit. You always want to play it. Like, for instance, like if I'm in my car, I feel like the drums is in my head, like all the, the pens is in my head, and I have to rehearse the music in my head to come over there to get it right. So for me, it's so exciting, and it's something that I will tell anyone to get into because they are missing something in life. 
we have here in the United States over 500 steel orchestras scattered throughout the country. And probably worldwide, there are probably 12 or 1,500 of them. All of them originally emanating from the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, where it began in around 1930. After emerging in Trinidad and throughout the Caribbean to the point where Grenada, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, Antigua, all of them have the same sort of festivities that we're preparing for now. The drums were originally made from discarded containers from the oil fields and from the U.S. Army, which at the time had a large presence in Trinidad. Because the people were always looking for things to make rhythm with, they started using them, and that evolved from a, a long tradition of various types of rhythm-making devices made out of wood and bamboo and just about anything that made a pleasing sound. At the beginning, the steel bands were considered to be made up of social undesirables, gang-related to some degree, mostly sort of bad boys who, you know, aimless youth and so on and so forth. But that's a thing of the past. I mean, now respectable people play, and in fact, I would say of the 2,000 or so people that play in Brooklyn, 50% are women, and at least 50% of them are under the age of 21. Many of these kids either came here to the United States when they were very young, and many of them were born here, but their parents are from the Caribbean, and so as part of keeping the culture alive, a lot of the parents really do encourage the kids to get involved in this thing, one, for musical education, and two, just for you know, cultural awareness, because the, the, many of the parents are very terrified of the influence of videos and 50 Cent and so on and so forth on their kids. They'd much rather hear them, have them playing pan. My son, he plays piano, but I'm not forcing him. Sooner or later, he's going to come to the pen. I'm going to make sure that he does. My daughter, she loves it because I have pen in my house. And sometimes soon as I wake up in the morning, I go on down there because it's a feeling that no one else, I mean, if you try it, you will never stop going back to it. It's really good. The Rado Steel Orchestra is competing tonight at the Brooklyn Museum for the title of New York City's Best Steel Drum Band. The impact of West Indian migration to New York City can not only be heard, it can be tasted. The city is full of restaurants that serve Caribbean cuisine. Negril is one of them. It has two locations in Manhattan, one in the village, the other in Chelsea. I talked with co-owner Sim Walker about Island Fair. I'm a second-generation Jamaican. My parents were born in Jamaica, and I was born and raised here in New York. What kinds of foods did you grow up eating? Uh, well, definitely Caribbean food, specifically uh, from Jamaica. Uh, we ate a lot of rice and beans, curry chicken, curry goat, oxtail stew. Uh, pretty much the, the basic Caribbean comfort foods. 
When you say oxtail, we are talking about an actual oxtail, huh? Uh, yes, we are. We're talking about the tail of the ox, which doesn't sound appetizing, but it's delicious once you eat it. How is that prepared? Normally, we take the tail cut into about two-inch thick portions, uh, trim the fat, season it, make sure it's well-seasoned uh, for about, leave it overnight, and then we braise the meat and cook it up into a stew. What does it taste like? And don't tell me, Sim, that it tastes just like chicken. You are eating beef, so it does taste like beef. The meat is a little bit fattier, so it holds the, the flavor unlike a steak, per se. But you, I think you have to definitely try it, and uh, it's a great experience once you have. Most people that eat oxtails love it. Tell me about the herbs and spices used in Caribbean cuisine. Definitely two of the main ingredients would be the scotch bonnet pepper, uh, which give uh, our cuisine most of the, the heat that it's known for, and pimento. And what does that taste like? I don't think I've ever had pimento. Pimento is a, is a ground spice, uh, pretty much uh, similar to black pepper. Is it true, Sim, that some spices and herbs used in Caribbean dishes can actually have a healing effect? Uh, absolutely. There's a, a lot of myths about uh, some of the things that we eat. Uh, they, if you drink sea uh, moss, you'll perform better in bed. Really? Uh, yes, sir. Sea moss, huh? Sea moss. Who knew? Uh, it, apparently it's true. People have been doing it for a long time now. What are some of the other more traditional Caribbean dishes? You have escovish fish, which is normally uh, a pickled vinaigrette applied to a fried seafood. It's great. Here at the restaurant, we do it with snapper which is delicious. You have jerk chicken. Uh, we can't forget jerk chicken, uh, which is uh, almost, we would compare it to being a spicy barbecued chicken. We see jerk chicken on menus all across the city. Oh, well, when, you, when we talk about Jamaica, Jamaica is known for jerk just as Japan is for teriyaki. And what about Caribbean desserts? Oh, wow, the, the bread pudding, definitely. Bread pudding is a is a known dessert in the Caribbean. You have sweet potato, uh, sweet potato pudding, or sweet potato pone, uh, which is good. A lot of hearty desserts. Are a lot of the foods that we find here, the Caribbean foods, Americanized at all, or are they pretty authentic? I would say, well, one thing that we do special at the Negril restaurants is we keep the keep our food authentic as possible, especially when it comes down to the stews but make it accessible to everyone. So meaning that some of the our spicy just dishes wouldn't be too spicy. And, uh, you know, we change certain things around just so it's accept- acceptable to a broad spectrum of people. Okay, so back in the homeland, though, the food might be even spicier than what we get here in New York. A little bit. I think overall it's a myth that all Caribbean food is spicy, uh, I, it's more so flavorful. You know, Caribbean people are known for seasoning their food a lot. What's your favorite dish? I would have to say I enjoy uh, red snapper, curry shrimp, uh, definitely jerk chicken. Every time I go to Jamaica, my first stop is to a place called the Pork Pit in Montego Bay. They have the best jerk chicken there. Uh, and I enjoy it all, honestly. Curry goat, nothing tastes like curry goat. Describe that flavor for me. Oh, wow. Well, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to describe. First, you have the curry spices, but nothing seems to blend the same when, with goat. Then if you eat curry chicken, 
Uh, there's a number of dishes that we can curry, but nothing tastes like curry goat. You have a, a great curry flavor. Uh, you have the wild taste of the goat, uh, a gamey uh, taste coming from the goat meat. Uh, it's just an excellent dish. You have to try it to understand it. What would you say, Sim, is the most exotic Caribbean dish? Most people have a, you know, have a hard time with oxtail until they have it. Uh, a lot of people don't understand goat. But I think maybe the most exotic dish may be ackee and saltfish. Why is that exotic? Most people aren't familiar with ackee. Ackee's been banned in the United States for quite some time. Why? Uh, well, it's a poisonous. It's a poisonous fruit. Huh. Ackee is a is a fruit that's grown on the on a tree. Uh, so it, it is a fruit by definition, although it's eaten like a vegetable. Uh, well, take me back here for a second. If it's a poisonous fruit, how are we able to eat it? Well, this is how we do it. Aki grows as a pod, and we have to wait till the pod, till that pod ripens and opens up. Once it opens, it releases a poisonous gas. Once that gas is released, it's okay to eat. If we eat it before the pod ripens on its own and open, and it cannot be forced open, then that the the poison remains inside the fruit. Hmm. I'm afraid now if I air this interview, we may have Homeland Security show up at the radio station. I, I don't think so. I think it's uh, it's okay now, so we're clear. You must try Aki. It, it, it has an appearance like scrambled eggs, actually. So I'll be able to find that somewhere here, do you think? Uh, sure. You can find Aki at a number of local Caribbean restaurants. And, you know, we do offer it as a special from time to time. Are you doing anything special for the West Indian Day Parade in the city? Absolutely. Well, we'll be hosting a great Labor Day party in our restaurant on West 3rd Street on Sunday night. So anybody that can't make it to the parkway or wants to experience uh, Caribbean music before should definitely come down to our pre-Labor Day party on Sunday night. Sim Walker, thanks so much for your time. And thank you. Sim Walker of Negril Restaurant in Manhattan. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. We hope we left you with the hunger to experience West Indian culture for yourself. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Mahal Niria. Have a great weekend.